Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making Coast of Mississippi such an amazing place to live work and play. Hey, we have a good guest today. Before we get to our guest, I want to do a quick review. This this is playing Monday. We're actually taping this right after the elections uh, because that's when Austin Golden, who we'll be talking to shortly, was available. Um, but I wanted to, it gives me an opportunity actually to reflect a bit on the shows that we've had over the past uh, week. And uh, I mean, it's just been, it's been really terrific. I mean, just a string of, of great guests. Um, I want to I want to continue to give my kudos to Craig Ray from Visit Mississippi. He's doing such a great job leading the tourism focus in this state. If you missed my conversation with Craig, you can go to the Super Talk Gulf Coast Facebook page or your favorite podcast, or to the Super Talk Mississippi YouTube page and watch it. But we covered a lot of ground, including the real opportunity internationally to bring people into coastal Mississippi. It was just a great conversation. Uh, we also actually talked about. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and his recent death and what he meant to Mississippi and the opportunity to have him engaged in a conversation around the uh, the country music marker that is at its place now in North Mississippi. Just a great story. Um, we had a terrific conversation with Jamie Miller from the new president and CEO of the Gulf Coast Business Council. Uh, Jamie comes to the Business Council from the Mississippi Development Authority, but he had uh, he had a stint as the leader of the Department of Marine Resources here on the coast. He was a chief of staff for Congressman Palazzo along the way. I mean, he just has a great background. I had the opportunity to work with him when I read, led the oil recovery efforts for Governor Raleigh after, after the oil spill in Alabama. So he's uh, bringing all this great experience back into coastal Mississippi. So if you missed that conversation, you know, you ought to go back and take a look at it. it it's, it's a very disclosing discussion about leadership and his preparation for this really important position and uh, and others. I, I should also point out that my conversation with Matt McDonald and Michelle Minningman was really terrific. Uh, I had the opportunity to go uh, spend some time with them during the Judd's concert and see what goes on behind the scenes. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me. And we talked about it. We talked about what it takes to to build a strong coliseum. They don't have a bunch of tax dollars coming to the coliseum. They're like an entrepreneurial effort. They they have their own revenue and expense uh, income statement, and they got to make it work. Even during the even during the pandemic, um, they were able to get some some help, uh, like other businesses were able to get. But at the end of the day, they have to be innovative and entrepreneurial and driven. And what they're doing at the coliseum is truly remarkable, and it is another reminder of this incredible economic engine we have here in coastal Mississippi. Awesome, awesome conversation. So if you missed that conversation with uh, Matt McDonald and his number two, Michelle Minningman, uh, I would really in encourage you to go take a look at it. So now let's shift gears, and I want to move over to my friend Austin Golding. He's the president and CEO of, Austin, of uh, Golding Barge Line in Vicksburg. Uh, they have a real unique, if you've heard our conversations before, they have a real unique sort of perspective on things because they send um, all kinds of uh, petrochemical components throughout the inland waterways of the United States and have great relationships with with uh, refineries and oil companies and a, and a myriad of other companies. 
And uh, they're, they're in a, he, Austin's in a really unique position to sort of get a sense of the lay of the land. He's uh, often on national uh, media uh, programs to talk about uh, you know, his unique view. He's young and bright and uh, a great leader here in Mississippi. And he's, uh, he's coming to us from Vicksburg, which incidentally is uh, extremely low. The Mississippi River is extremely low. We're going to talk about that, too. Austin, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. Uh, exciting watching a lot of these political results come in. So I'm watching this low water roll by. So it's interesting times we're living in. Yeah, you posted a picture uh, on Facebook or Instagram that I saw. And man, it's incredibly low. I mean, really low. And I told you, I, I hunt at least once a year for, over at King's Point, And we usually yeah. sit on the front porch looking out over the Mississippi River. It's going to be interesting to be there this year to see it firsthand. But but, you know, that's not the story, as, as you've made sure we understood. What the story is, is what's happening north, what's happening up, up further north in the, for the Mississippi River. Why don't you get people a sense of just how challenging it is? Well, I think, you know, from an all-time perspective, north of Vicksburg, uh, between Rosedale, Mississippi, and really Cairo, Illinois, it's as low as it's ever been. We got a little relief from this weather that came through the last couple of weeks, and um, it looks like we're probably on the good side of this issue. But the interesting thing is, you know, we're going to be just above critical stage probably through December and, um, you know, making plans to operate that way into the spring. So I don't think we get a, any normalcy until uh, springtime. And, it, you know, we could be talking about long, extended low water operations for a while. Uh, but the challenging part is you have to decide how much cargo to put on your barges to see how deep they draft uh, and how many barges you carry to see how wide or long you are to be able to sneak through some of these really tight spots. Well, what you said the last time we were together here on Coast View is that <clears throat> what used to take four barges now takes five. Is that still the scenario or is it worse than that? No, that's still, it actually did get worse than that, but now we're probably back that we're probably back in that, uh, in that, in that range. Um, you know, I would say in two weeks, that's going to be a little bit better metric. Uh, we're probably going to raise drafts another foot uh, in two weeks, uh, but it'll you know if we don't get any more rain, it's probably going to fall back out. Uh, they also shut a lot of the flow off of Missouri in mid-December every year to rebuild to hold those reservoirs, so we lose a little flow on the upper uh, when it comes to December. So that'll have to be offset by some water. But you know we're in a situation, and and I you know you mentioned some of the national media spots. For some reason everybody wants me to beat up on the core. Uh, they've done a remarkable job. I mean, we're operating at a very, very uh, reliable level right now in historic low water. So you talk to the guys when we talk to them out there. The river's actually in pretty, pretty good shape. Uh, the the tough part of these ports and these docks and some of these ingress egress spots, but the core has done a great job of keeping us going. So you're able to navigate. That's that's what essentially what you're saying. And they have a real responsibility. Not only people tend to think of the core as flood control, but Gosh, their responsibilities on the Mississippi River are so critical. You know, when you, <laughs> for people who don't think much about this, talk about sort of the economic role that the Mississippi River plays, not just in America, but around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you saw really uh, the center of our country be the, the growth of our country economically, and most of them are, most of our major cities are on something uh, that is a maritime focus that feeds that economic uh, engine locally and gives them a, a kind of a, an export window to the rest of the world. So 
what we really do in this country on the Mississippi River is gather all of our agricultural products that are going to be for export, uh, get them to market via this inland superhighway. We also carry a lot of materials that go into construction, uh, whether it be uh, steel or concrete material construction, uh, port to port. We carry a lot of our energy products like we do uh, in a very efficient manner within the center of our country. And it allows places that are not coastal to have a international market come in and out of their region. And, you know, it's a real blessing because one uh, economic expert that I like to listen to, Peter Zihan, brings out a good point. Russia, a lot of their maritime focus flows north into the Arctic. It does not flow south into different markets, into warmer weather, into larger oceans or gulfs. Uh, So they're really restricted merit from a maritime sense. Um, You know, on the opposite side, China, uh, it has a long centuries old maritime uh, history that's added a lot of their sustainability and a lot of their stability uh, when it comes to economics. So I think that, that America's benefit is you have to obviously two coasts to go global with our markets, but we have a main vein right down the center of our country that allows for a, a quick export and an expedient uh, inner, inner country uh, economy uh, that can be used and sustained. Yeah. <clears throat> Something we haven't talked about before, just to kind of give people a, a sense of the scope of your company. Is there a sort of a war room or a, a planning room or um, a logistics room that you can go in and literally see all your boats and in, 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 at one time up on a map moving around? And uh, if we if we were to whether you have it or not, if we were to look at such a thing, what would it reveal about where your boats are now? Sure. Oh, no, we have multiple monitors uh, right outside my office here at our logistics area. We also have a, uh, a windowless kind of focus room where we meet and, and do a lot of uh, uh, meeting really in the morning. That's game planning and re- a response meeting later. But if you looked at the map, if you pull back and looked, uh, we would have today uh, eight vessels that are between Lake Charles and uh, Louisiana and Brownsville, Texas. We'd have eight vessels between New Orleans and Panama City, Florida. We would have around 10 vessels between Baton Rouge and uh, uh, St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and then uh, some singular vessels around the Arkansas and then the Tennessee Valley and then the northern Alabama and uh, kind of along the 10 times. So uh, it's a true national operation. We were in Chicago last month, and uh, we've gone to Pittsburgh before. We've gone to Oklahoma. So you never really know. That, that's incredible. Uh, what a business right there in right, right there in Vicksburg. Hey, when we come back on the other side, I want to talk about a conversation that that uh, that that we had offline. Uh, Austin and I had offline about uh, America's energy policy. Something we continue to talk about here on Coast View. But you know, this war against uh, energy companies is not leading us in a good place. We'll see you after this break with more from Austin Golden. Live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Supertalk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coast View. I have Austin Golding with, from Golding Barge Lines. He is uh, it's a privately owned business in in uh, Vicksburg, and they they do significant, especially around mostly petrochemical. Now, do you do other than petrochemical, Austin? We do, we do, and, and one of uh, the Gulf Coast area's uh, best businesses is one of our biggest partners in our rock business, Warren Paving. Yeah, uh, we, we move a lot of rock for Stephen Warren and his his outfit, and a lot of rock goes into the uh, Moss Point area and around the Pascagoula area. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not surprised to hear that because you guys are, again, log- logistically all over the place as it as it relates to in- inland waterways of of Mississippi and beyond. I might add. Um, so you know, you and I had a chat the other day. Um, once again. You saw the president. Again, this is not a political statement. It, it lands as a political statement simply just because when you move from a Republican administration to a Democratic administration, then back again, that pendulum is constantly swinging. And um, and it's hard to, to manage energy policy in four-year increments. That's just, that's just the reality, or even eight-year eight, uh, eight, uh, increments. But more recently, uh, Biden sort of uh, against once again chided uh, energy companies for having too high profits, without noting that there are other times when they have very low profits. You know, it's a their pendulum swings constantly as well. But but you and I sort of chatted back and forth and essentially agreed that that really is not helping. I mean, at a time when energy companies we rely on them to sort of help us figure out what's going to be the best path forward as we move toward renewables because even i don't care which oil company you're talking to they understand that the future is renewable what they what there's vast disagreement about particularly on the political front is what that transition should look like or how long it should take you we're not going to get to all electric vehicles overnight we're not going to get to all you know win overnight there's there's a reality here that we've got to get our arms around and for whatever reason we we're just pushing the polarizing ends on this. Um, let's talk about that first and how that probably makes you crazy. And then I, then we'll shift gears and say, you know, as it relates to this, uh, this, this outcome, which probably will mean that we have a, have a, um, a, a split house and Senate and more of a gridlock scenario, how you think that might help us find the middle ground, which we need to be able to find as it relates to energy. But let's talk about the first, when you hear those, that chiding against the energy companies, what it, what what comes to mind for you? Well, I, I think it's you know purely political. I don't think it's based in any kind of uh, practicality. I mean, that administration knows that these are not patriotically based companies. These are privately held companies that a lot of time have international interests at the at the wheel, and they're going to sell their products at a global market. They don't really care, uh, you know, anything about domestic policy. Now, I'll say. They care about it when it comes to their investment. And today, when they decide to sell that product to somebody for a certain price, uh, that decision about what they have, what kind of cost bear they have to get over to create a profit uh, is severely impacted by decisions that, that are punitive towards the oil and gas industry. So you're seeing refineries come offline. You're seeing substantial infrastructure divestment. You're seeing not a lot of new investment in uh, growth or, or startups around that industry. And, you know, one, you know, all right, well, what's the solution? All right, we're complaining that he's attacking uh, oil and gas, and there's a reason that they're maximizing profits, and there's not a refining capacity, and, and they're going to sell, the, you know, the high, to the highest bidder. What's the solution? You know, in my opinion, uh, 
I think that there ought to be some kind of a, a, a minimum standard of operation for a refinery that if things slack off uh, and you come down beneath that, uh, there's a reaction, whether it either be a, a tax penalty or some kind of minimum standard enforcement. Uh, but if you operate at a higher margin and you maintain a maximum output, uh, you get a tax break or some kind of incentive uh, to try to make you continue to run up. Uh, and so when oil get, uh, you know, falls out of the economy suffers, uh, they keep making gasoline and diesel and we get to enjoy a dollar gallon or a dollar gas of diesel uh, because the oil company's not out anything and that savings gets passed on to us. Or we, you know, see an economic pinch. They start shutting off valves. They start shutting off refining capability and we have to pay four to six dollars a gallon when things are already tough because they're feeling it, too. Uh, so that would be my solution um, from a policy standpoint. What's Probably. interesting, yeah. What's interesting, and that's actually that's more of a that's definitely a tactical thing that can be done. I mean, if 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 they could get alignment around that, and again, we'll shift gears and talk about what a what a more moderate uh, legislative body might mean to a, a conversation like that. Um, What's interesting about that, though, you've helped you've helped us understand that no matter what is go- done in terms of maximizing current refinery capacity, it's not going to be enough. That what we need right. is more capacity, and that what we saw after the pandemic is actually capacity being taken offline. And do you see any scenario where capacity is put back online? I think you're going to see different capacity uh, come online that's not necessarily making gasoline or diesel. I think you'll see uh, a lot of ethylene, a lot of uh, natural gas, uh, a lot of other renewable diesel uh, uh, refinery uh, capability come online. Uh, I think you could even see it start to create some more ammonia, some control more of our fertilizer uh, horizon. But no, I don't see gas or diesel uh, refining being expanded on uh, unless there's some kind of commitment that this thing can amortize itself or, you know, be profitable for 30 to 40 more years because it is so much, so much capital goes into keeping these things running that it doesn't make sense to capitalize for them to keep them running for two or three years and then have uh, the rug pulled out from underneath you. The boom or bust that goes on in the oil field does not go on in the refinery world and they're not going to be susceptible to that. And so they're going to slowly take things offline and not react to spikes um, from a capital cost standpoint, uh, like the wildcatters or the oil wells, will, or quite frankly, the barge business has in the past. You saw Biden leading up to the to election as he was doing some last-minute stomping for specific candidates, made the point along the way that we're not going to drill anymore. We're, you know, we're not going to drill anymore. What happens when the president of the United States makes that kind of statement? I think beyond impact and drilling directly, it's a it's a, a overture that he's not a fan. And so there's going to be other decisions that go on that aren't so public that are going to make it more difficult for me to be in the oil and gas business because he's not a fan of it. So I think the the impression that it gives people is uh, they're going cross current to what the regulators and the lawmakers are fans of if they invest in oil and gas. And that put that makes Especially when somebody has a lot of capital and they're presenting choices, they're not. They're not. All right, well, I'm gonna choose something that's not as in the crosshairs. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the bigger impact it makes. Hey, when you are when you're meeting with uh, with your you know cohorts and th- th- those that are in your business and those in the energy sector, 
when you're sitting down having a, a cup of coffee, how often does the snowballing effect of Russia come up in your conversations? Uh, mainly with the fertilizer guys. Um, you know, lately, and I know this is a hot topic that I think you can get ahead of a little bit, you know, this diesel shortage, uh, the cascading effect of the diesel shortage will mirror what people have already lived through in the fertilizer world. So I think if people want to see what's the diesel shortage going to look like, look at what the patterns around the world when it comes to ammonia and UAN and different kind of nitrogen additives uh, that is born out of Russia. Uh, see what kind of patterns those are going towards. The the key here for uh, you know Russia in my in our mind is what happens when COVID uh, when China comes out of their COVID po- COVID lockdown policy and. All of a sudden now, uh, there's a run on Russian products that are probably the production in that part of the world in Russia has been ramped down. And is there enough business for India and China to keep pulling from Russia uh, that'll keep Russian production up? Because if Russia cuts production because its only customers are India and China and China continues to see economic trouble, uh, you're going to see the run on diesel from Europe and South America that's made here. And so if you want a gallon of diesel in Vicksburg or Biloxi, Mississippi, you better be willing to pay more for it than somebody in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or Denmark is willing to pay for it. Yeah, that's the point you continue to make. It's, it's uh, We're dealing with global energy companies. These aren't companies that are just doing business in America and, uh, and America relies on them and they rely on America. They're global companies. And they're, and they're they're always going to think like a global co- company, and resources are going to go where the opportunity is. That's just a, any any business works that way. It is, and and there's, I think as Americans, number one, you know, we're narcissists. You know, we think the world is only as 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 we see it, and we're the biggest fish in the in the sea. So you know, that's that's our world, and everybody else reacts to it. Uh, that's a, you know, we're a big driver in the oil and gas world. But from a global standpoint, uh, these companies are more, I, I've always made the, the, the analogy, they're more like professional golfers. They're going to play in the tournament that has the highest payout. They're not, they don't have to play in the NFL in this country. Uh, and so if you see an emerging economy uh, come out that drives demand, or you see a faltering economy that's providing supply, that's how you get a diesel shortage. That's how you get a, a fertilizer shortage, and that's where we are in the Russia well, the fertilizer storage for me, I had the opportunity to, to have, we buy a lot of, of uh, nitrate for our farm, three farms that I lease up in the Delta. And it seems poor quality. It's got more of an ammonia smell to it. It's just not not what it used to be. Hey, listen, we'll pick up on the other side uh, when we when we meet again in a few weeks and talk more about the political situation after it's kind of kind of played out a little bit. It's been a pleasure, Austin, to, to visit with you this morning. Hey, thank you, Ricky. All my best. You know, have a great week. You bet. This has been Austin Golding from Golding uh, Barge Line, and we'll see you after this break. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.